I Read Comics, show number 49. Is it a bad thing that I like Pokemon now? Not the cards or anything, just the TV show. They show it all the time on Cartoon Network, and for some reason, because I just have it on while I'm doing other things, I started to actually watch it. And just this past Friday, they premiered a movie to introduce the 10th season, which they've been showing in Japan for a while. And I actually sat down and made some popcorn and watched it and got all excited about it. I don't know. I think there's something wrong with me. But that's okay. I I really like Pikachu. Pikachu is my favorite character because... It's a thing that looks like a rabbit, but it's supposed to be a mouse. And the only thing it ever says is Pikachu. And um, when it gets really pissed off, it scrunches up its face and thunder and lightning come off of it. And I I just think it's really, really funny to see uh, the character that is the extreme of cuteness in Japan have lightning bolts coming off of it. it. I cracked up at work the other day because I was telling Logan about this. And he said, oh, yeah, Pikachu. And then he did a really perfect imitation of Pikachu being mad and going, Pikachu. It was great. Um, The other thing about Pikachu that I really like is that in the world of Pokemon, Pikachu's the only thing, the only Pokemon that talks like an alien. I mean, it really does sound like the way some strange creature would talk. And I found out that's because Pikachu's the only voice that is carried over from the Japanese animation like all the other stuff is revoiced by american actors but not pikachu so that's the way they hear it in japan as well by the way can anybody explain the world of pokemon to me are there no animals in the world because i never see any regular animals all the animals are pokemon does that mean people eat them or do they have like breeding farms for pokemon that taste really really good and you know what happens when a pokemon's in a pokeball and the owner gets killed like do they have to stay in there forever i don't really get it And, I don't know, if you understand it, you could explain it to me, but maybe we shouldn't even talk about this anymore. So, I have a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. The first thing is a (laughs) wrap-up of the WonderCon event, which was now over a month ago. And I just wanted to mention that the podcasting panel that I did on Sunday morning with Logan and with the the guys from iFanboy went really, really well. Um, There were quite a few people there, and we got asked great questions the iFanboy guys tried to record audio for it, but unfortunately it did not turn out, and I was very sad about that because I wanted to put that on the show, and in fact I was sort of waiting for that to be the next show, but Ron told me that it did not come out, so sadly it is lost forever. But it was great to see so many people and to talk about things, and one of the good questions that got asked of me was, um, what mistakes have you made or, or what would you do differently? And I said, truthfully, that I have really sucked at trying to record interviews on the fly and it's my own fault for being stupid and lazy about it. So I did something. I bought a little iRiver and I've been experimenting with recording in public places and it works really, really, really good. So now I have something. So maybe the next time I do an interview with someone in a public place that's not over Skype, it'll sound good. And I might even try to do some podcasting in the car a la Comicology. So that was a good thing. Um, the rest of Sunday was pretty interesting. There was a whole series of panels that were spotlights on um, women. And the one that I went to see was called Gender and Genre. 
and it had uh, Pia Guerra, who is the artist for Why the Last Man, the comic I hate, but also uh, Jane Espenson, who is a writer for Buffy and Battlestar Galactica and a bunch of other things, and it turns out that we actually know each other. And they had some really interesting things to say about female characters, and that was a very, very well-attended panel. So it was great to see so many people, great to see all the really interesting questions being asked there. So all in all, it was really good. And uh, thanks to James at Isotope for throwing a really kick-ass party on Saturday night, wherein most of the podcasting people had way too much to drink. So I wanted to mention one other thing, which I did not see, but I think it's very important to comment on. It's been around the blogosphere a lot, so here I am putting in the last, last word. At the DC panel at WonderCon, um, Dan DiDio was asked, as he is often asked, about Stephanie Brown and Robin, and why is there no memorial case for her in the Batcave? Catherine Keller, who um, blogs and also writes for Sequential Tart, got up and asked the question, and said, why? So I'm going to read from her article in Sequential Tart about this, which I will link to. So she says, it's an open letter to Dan DiDio, and she says, when I rose a few weeks back and asked you at WonderCon when we would be seeing a memorial to Stephanie Brown in the Batcave, you tried to kick the answer over to Jan Jones, who promptly boomeranged it back to you. You responded that there were no plans to put a memorial for Steph in the Batcave because Steph became Robin, quote, by her own resort, was never really accepted, died out of costume, and was Robin only for a short time. When two women rose and asked you similar questions at Wizard World LA, you replied, in your opinion, Steph was never really a Robin. So, as people have done all along, this is contrasted with the actual panels from those issues of Batman, where Steph, who's dying, (laughs) says to Batman, was any of it real? Was I ever really Robin? And Batman says, of course you were. She says, no matter what, no one can take that away. And he says, Batman says, no matter what. So now you have, it's Dan DiDio's word against Batman, and you know what? Call me crazy, I'm going to take Batman's word for it, because he's Batman, goddammit. So, once again, dodging the question, not really answering it. Um, I, I do have to mention that DiDio was quoted, and other people said this too, um, Steph became Robin by her own resort, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Now, I realize that as the editor of a comic book company, English is probably a second language for Dan DiDio, and he doesn't really understand the nuances of words like resort. But saying by her own resort makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I think what he's trying to say is that she decided she was going to be Robin and Batman didn't actually tap her to do it. But you know, fuck that. Batman became Batman by his own resort. (laughs) It wasn't like somebody had to go and christen him Batman. So that's a really stupid objection to it. And I I just have to say, by her own resort, no sense whatsoever. Don't ever say that again. It doesn't make any sense. So I want to bring this up in context of um, two things that I posted on the blog recently, and I put a little note by them saying, you'll need this for future reference. And one of them is anti-feminist bingo, and the other is anti-comic feminist bingo, courtesy of Karen Healy over at Girl Wonder Forums. And I would like to call attention to the fact that um, Dan DiDio's defense is basically in the bottom right corner, which is, comics are never going to change, you're wasting your time. And that's pretty much his opinion. Um, Also, it should be pretty obvious that he knows he's wrong, um, but right now he said that he doesn't care or it's not important or whatever he happens to make up on the spur of the moment so many times he would lose a lot of face if he backed down. 
and the fact that it's women who are really on his case about changing it would make it even worse because he'd have to get up in front of everybody and say, you know what? All these women, they were right and I was wrong and girls were right and I was wrong and now I have to apologize to girls. And he'll never do that. I mean, come on. So um, I understand that there are many, many people, men and women included, who plan on asking him the same question every single time he makes a public appearance. And I heartily applaud that. So while I don't think he's ever going to change his mind about it, um, unless there's some money involved or something, I do think it's going to be great to see him publicly embarrassed again and again and again about this, because I think most people agree he's wrong and there should be a memorial because, you know, it's not like it's costing DC actual money to build one of those things. (laughs) You know, it's not like they have to hire contractors or an architect or anything. They just say to the artist, could you draw a memorial in the back cave? And you know what? It's not going to cost them anymore. So, um, other things that have been going on in the blogosphere include um, the Michael Turner JLA cover of Power Girl. And um, I think it's really important to talk about that. Lots and lots and lots of other people have talked about it. I'm not going to post that image on my site because you've probably had your eyes burned by it way, way too many times already. But it's Power Girl, and um, it's a really horrible drawing. So, let me say right off the bat... The drawing is basically a piece of shit, and it's that way for a number of reasons. Um, it's really ugly. Um, the posture of Power Girl is all wrong. It's anatomically incorrect. It's done by a lazy, lazy artist who doesn't know how to draw anatomically correct anybody. It's not just women. It's one of those poses where human bodies can't possibly do that. Um, and it's just plain ugly. Um, her arm doesn't match the rest of her body. She has that vacant model look on her face and the overly done manga hair that I hate so very, very, very much. And on top of it, she has bigger tits than I've ever seen her have anywhere. And they don't sit on her body right. So clearly he like drew the body in this horrible twisted pose and then, you know, drew two giant round things stuck on them because he thinks that's the way it's supposed to look. And everybody hates it, and it's awful, and, you know, rightly so. It's a piece of shit artwork by a hack, and I feel no guilt at all in saying that. It's a piece of shit work by a hack. Now, I do want to mention that in Brad Meltzer's journal, he says, uh, what is it? Oh, I'm reading right from it. It's his post for Thursday, March 15th. He said, and yes, this is after we asked to reduce Power Girl's chest. I call them the bottled cities of Candor. <laughs> That's so funny. What a great joke. Um, so I hope you all realize that when Brad Melser says they asked Turner to reduce the size of her breasts, he's lying. That's a lie. They never asked her, him to reduce the size of her breasts, and there was never any other drawing where they said, oh, these are too big. He's saying that to deflect all the criticism that he knows is going to happen based on this image. So I just want to make sure everybody understands that, that when somebody says a thing like that, that it's a lie. Um, So the other thing that I want to say about this, and I mentioned this before, and it's becoming even clearer to me when I see images like this, that that kind of art where the women have just enormous impossible breasts and the the twisted spines and the over really overly sexualized poses where you're basically looking at their crotches you know like you'd be able to give them a pap smear if you were just close enough or you know the breasts are coming out of the page they're just jerk off material for the artists and 
as it was so eloquently put in uh, a blog by um, Brown Betty, who I really like, and I will link to her thing also. She says, looking at this cover makes me feel like Michael Turner just walked up to me, came on my face and left. And that's exactly the way I feel too. I feel like whenever I look at one of these images, I am holding a piece of paper that the artist came all over that this is basically his wank material and that people like Dan DiDio, for example, feel comfortable publishing an artist's cum stain as their art. Personally, I think that's really creepy because it's not porn. You know, when you're reading porn comic books, yeah, it is jerk-off material. It's supposed to be that way. When I'm reading a regular comic book, I don't want to see the artist, or the writer for that matter, I don't want to see their personal sex fantasies played out in front of me, knowing that this is what they think about when they jerk off. I don't want to think about Michael Turner sitting at his desk with his pants down and one hand on his cock masturbating while he's drawing this image of Power Girl. And that's exactly what I'm thinking about when I look at this image. And I'm not the only one who thinks that. Lots and lots of people look at it and go, holy crap, we're looking at his sex fantasy and they're publishing it as the cover of a comic book. There's something wrong here. There's something really, really wrong. So, Dan DiDio, do you really feel comfortable publishing, as I said, cum stains of artists as covers for your work? I suggest you think about that and question it, um, because it really is a bad attitude to have. And you wonder why women don't read comics. Going right along with this are the horrible, horrible um figurines that have been released. I just saw the Catwoman one, which of course she has her zipper down and her tits falling out. And the Supergirl one is just porn. I mean, why don't you just put it in porn stores? You know, it's supposed to be based on this costume that she has, which basically leaves her bare from the underside of her tits to the top of her pubic area, which apparently is shaved because I don't see any pubic hair on it. It is really just obscene for a Supergirl figurine. And they wonder why, you know, women don't want to read comic books if this is what they're putting out as art. It's somebody's art. It's not the kind of art that's going to make people want to read a storyline. It's jerk-off material. Go please sell it under Eros and put it in, you know, the dank and dirty store down the week. You wouldn't even find that kind of crap in a place like Good Vibrations, which is very woman positive. So that was all very icky and disgusting, and those figurines are just horrible, horrible things. On the plus side, in the happy news department, what this has inspired have been two just absolutely wonderful things. Um, one is a draw Power Girl meme. There have been a lot of memes floating around, and they're mostly about the female characters in reaction to exactly this sort of misogynistic, over-sexualized shit that you see being published in comic books. And the draw Power Girl meme was started by Ross Campbell. I'll put in a link to it, and had wonderful participation. So many interesting images of Power Girl the way she could be. You know, being a superhero and not being um, a stripper. So it's great, and I've put the image that I like the best from that meme on the the blog notes for this particular show, but you should all go and look at all of the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful art because these artists are just doing an incredible job and they should all be drawing comics and not Michael Turner. You know, they should go and just quickly eject him from his place. And these are the people who should be drawing mainstream comics because they fucking rock. Now, one more thing from the blogosphere 
See, that's what I spend all my time doing, is just reading blogs. I read When Fangirls Attack every time it updates, and it's just fucking wonderful. Um, You will remember, I mentioned this in a previous podcast, that uh, when people started scanning in and posting the horrible wizard's how-to-draw anatomy, um, there was just an awful lot of vomiting over it because of the whole section. And not... Not not coincidentally, Michael Turner being involved in that about how women are supposed to be drawn with the twisted spines and the sultry eyes and chewing on their hair and all that other shit. Um, and people have done a great job of parroting it. And I found this great one, which although it came out last uh, October, I, I just found it linked, I think, on When Fangirls Attacked. And it is just just so wonderful. So it's basically a gender flip on this. And the way it's done is so awesome. Um, It takes all of the advice, the good advice about how to draw men and applies it, but using women as the examples and makes them look just incredibly heroic and strong. And one of the examples is a female daredevil, which is so incredibly awesome. I look at it and I go, oh, this is great. And then all of the shit about how to draw women is now applied to men, drawing them in extremely sexualized and sultry poses and all the emphasis on the eyes and uh, just basically turning them into sex objects and showing what it would be like if they were really like that. Um, I have to say my favorite part is uh, talking about how to draw dicks and there's some really good commentary on that. Let's see if I can find exactly. Oh, these poses are just so great. Showing all these men in model poses, just posing and posing and posing and posing the way women are always posed with their heads thrown back and their hair all over the place and their eyes kind of giving that come hither look and looking totally passive and twisted spine all over the place. Okay, this is it. This section about superheroic men, this is called cup size. And the text says, oh, next to the text is a great illustration of um, two male, not torsos, but the groin area wearing a thong with one with a slightly larger dick than the other. It's covered, but it's still really sexual. It says, this is a very touchy subject. We all know that penises come in many different sizes and one size is no better than the other, nor does a large penis on a character make him any less intelligent than characters with smaller packages. Design your character with any size you want. The bottom of the balls will line up about half a handspan below the bottom of the buttocks. And, you know, I think that that's true, and we should be seeing more of it. Um, it's really, really great to, to just see what it's like to have the genders flipped and to have all of this stupid, stupid advice about drawing women applied to men and, and seeing male characters in the same poses. So that made me very, very happy to see it, and I'll definitely put the links up. You know, it just occurred to me that some people might not have a chance to go and look at the bingo, so I'm just going to read it. Um, This is the comics one, because I think it's a little more applicable, but you should totally read the regular feminist one, because I hear that stuff all the time, and, you know, the hate mail that I get quotes those things. They're practically verbatim. But the comics one is great, and you see these quotes all over the place when it comes to discussing women in comics. So... I'll read them. And each one is a square, and you can play along anytime a topic like women in comics comes up, say, on the DC boards, and you'll have bingo in no time at all. So just read manga like the rest of the girls. But doing martial arts in high heels is perfectly reasonable. No one wants realism in comics. If you don't like it, shut up and write your own. Sexism is a convention of the genre. Are you calling me a misogynist? 
Why are you complaining about comics when women in Muslim countries are oppressed? But rape happens in real life, too. But super strong women don't need bras. You're only jealous because you don't look like that. So you want comics full of ugly fat chicks? But she's from an alien culture with no nudity taboo. This is just fanboy entitlement from women. My girlfriend never complains about this stuff. But male characters die, too. There aren't many women working in mainstream comics because they're just not good enough. Men can't help themselves. Why are you punishing us for our biology? But girls often wear skirts. Why wouldn't they go flying in them? If you don't like them, don't read them. That's censorship. But that costume suits her personality. Women just don't get comics. I mean, because they're just not interested. Comics are never going to change. You're wasting your time. And the center square, of course. But men are drawn unrealistically, too. I just read that on some thread that I was following today. Still, still being quoted. So um, print it out. Take it with you wherever you go. You know, you'll, you'll have ample opportunity to refer to it whenever you see a thread about women in comics. Because there it is. In fact, I think it would be a great idea to take this, print it out, giant size, like, I don't know, three feet by five feet and take it with you to the next comic book convention. And when Dan DiDio is up there and somebody starts asking him questions, someone should hold it up and point to the squares as he says the things that, that mark off the bingo in each one. And I bet you'll get bingo really quickly. So that's my suggestion. Um, I'm not going to uh, Comic-Con this summer, but of things to talk about. As I mentioned last time, I've been reading lots of things, and I've actually finished some, so this is a good thing. So um, before I get to the books, though, I wanted to mention that there was a good movie on Cartoon Network, which was the Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy movie, which was called uh, Billy and Mandy's Big Boogie Adventure, and I had seen the beginning of it at um, WonderCon when Maxwell Adams was there and showed the first, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. And it looked real interesting. And it was it was a good movie. Um, that series is ending really soon. So this is going to be the last season. And there were some clues in there about the direction that it might be going. It was a little disconcerting because the main character, aside from Grimm and Billy and Mandy and Irwin, was the boogeyman. And he's voiced by Fred Willard. I have such a strong association of Fred Willard with things like Fernwood Tonight and all the Christopher Guest movies that it's really hard for me to dissociate him from the character he's playing. So that was a little odd, but the whole movie is an adventure between, uh, about, uh, the boogeyman taking away Grimm's powers and then having to regain it via this trip. The, <laughs> I can't even explain it. They're in the underworld and they have to have a, a ship race with a pirate ship 
and uh, there's a god there who's voiced by George Siegel, which is really funny to hear him doing it. And there's a song, and uh, Irwin shows his true love for Mandy, and, and of course they all win in the end. But it, it was really good, and of course, like on Cartoon Network, they show these movies a bazillion times. So if you haven't seen it, I would definitely recommend watching it. It's pretty long, but it wasn't irritating like I thought it was going to be. Um, it was very, very amusing. So, uh, yeah, Billy and Mandy's Big Boogie Adventure. And I think they rushed it out to be on DVD as well. And I'm pretty sure that the first DVD of Billy and Mandy is coming out soon also. So I just wanted to mention that before I forgot. Now, on to the book. So the first book I have is a book that I actually bought quite a while ago. And I got it at Comic Relief, the only comic book store that matters, down on Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. Please go there and buy lots of stuff. And I bought it because um, Rory, the owner, said, you need to read this book, and he handed me a copy, so I bought it. And part of the reason why it's so good is that it's a beautiful little book. It's a hardcover. It's an unusual small size. And it has this beautiful embossed cover with a picture of Wimbledon Green in this sort of foil printing. And it, it's just a real delight to hold it. It's the way these beautiful little books should be made. It's not cheap in any way. And the... Inside of it, um, the art is not black and white. It's sort of sepia and white, and it's in very, very, very small panels. And um, the art by the author, who his cartoonist name is Seth. His real name, I just found out today, is Gregory Gallant, which sounds like a made-up name, but that's really his name. And, in fact, I'm going to put in a link to a really interesting article that he did, uh, an interview that he did, where he talks about um, how this came to be and some of his other influences. And if you read the... Um, little prologue that he's put in here, he talks about how this was never meant to really be a book. It was really his sketchbook. And he was doing this while he was working on other things, and it kind of grew and just turned into a book, and he decided to publish it. And I'm really glad he did, because it is a real comic geek book. Um, It's about a guy named Wimbledon Green, who's a comic book collector, and as it says right on the front, the greatest comic book collector in the world. And it's told partly from his point of view, but also the points of view of the other comic book collectors and some other people who are onlookers. And there is sort of a storyline, but it's told in a a series of not really connected stories. And Wimbledon Green himself is something of a mystery. Um, No one quite knows where he came from or what happened to him because he ends up disappearing at some point. And there's some speculation that he used to be a guy named Don Green. Get it? Wimbledon Green, Don Green. But not everybody believes that that's true. And what's great about it is the way it really captures the comic book collecting world, that there are people who will spend any kind of money and do anything to have the perfect collection, and how people look down on each other for different reasons and think they value different things and think that somebody's collection is better than another for very, very obscure and minute reasons. And Wimbledon Green himself is this guy who he, he he looks like okay so the art in here looks like the kind of art that you see on the monopoly cards it looks exactly like that and it has this sort of 20s 30s flavor and wimbledon himself is this he looks like the monopoly guy he's sort of short and fat and he's got a mustache and a pair of glasses and he has no eyes it's very uh little orphan annie there's no pupils to his eyes and he has a cane and he speaks in a sort of affected wc fieldsian way Um, And the other people talk somewhat like that, but then some of them talk more like modern real people do. And it gets very fantastic. He has a lot of money and he has a a servant from the East and there are rocket cars and all kinds of crazy things that happen. Um, 
there is a, a whole section that's devoted to his favorite comic, which is called Fine and Dandy, where he talks about why he loves it so much. And it was just a short lived comic book that came out in the twenties. And the way he goes on and on about it is really the way people talk about comic books that they love and all of the things that are great about them. So here is a fictitious character talking about a fictitious comic book, but with the same enthusiasm and attention for detail that everybody who really loves comics really shares. There's also some great mm, philosophy, poetry, really. Even though it's a book with a lot of art in it, there's a lot of good, not not dialogue, but um, monologue, I would say. And I wanted to read a little bit from the end here when Wimbledon is just talking about what's going on and where he came from and where he's going. So he says, I traveled the length of this country several times. These lonely experiences showed me the depths of my own soul, over hills and valleys, across prairies and mountains, along seashores. There is nothing to equal an education of this sort. How many nights did I stand silently by that old truck of mine, looking up into the vast sky, a dome of stars swimming over my head, infused with that great sense of aloneness that is always felt in the night? It is among the most profound feelings in life. But just what is that feeling? I can offer no description. Words cheapen it. I know that feel I know that feeling hung over me in those years, as if it guided me from place to place. I think inevitably it led me here to where I am today. And the future, who knows? I still have much to accomplish. Good night, dear friends. And that's the way the book ends. We really don't know what happens to him or where he goes. The other reason that this book is really interesting is that the character of Wimbledon Green and how he came into his comic book collection is based in real life on the um, find the, I want to say legendary find of the guy who runs Mile High Comics. Um, and his name is Chuck Rosansky. He has a blog at his website, milehighcomics.com. And I'm going to link to the specific section where he talks about what's called the original Mile High Collection, which he found in 1977. It was also known as the Edgar Church Collection. I had sort of known about this, but not really. Um, so I was really interested to read his account of what happened when he found this amazing comic book collection and how he bought it and then what happened to it afterwards. And the story of Wimbledon Green is very much based on that. The particulars are changed, but how he came to acquire it is, is almost verbatim. So in investigating a little bit more about Chuck Rosansky and Mile High Comics, if you look around the, the interwebs, um, you will find lots of people offering their opinions on whether he did a good thing or a bad thing. So very briefly, there was a family in, this is in Denver in the late 70s, 77, um, who called him up asking if, they, he owned a comic book shop at the time and he had a small business and said, w- would he come and look at this collection? And so he agreed to, um, he was the only one who agreed to come and look at it because several other dealers had been contacted and they didn't make house calls. So he went and he saw that it was vast and that the deeper he got into it, the more incredible stuff was there, including hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mint, mint for 1977 golden age comic books that had been bought and read once and stacked and were in pristine condition. So he got as much money as he could and he borrowed some money and all he had was his old van and he had to truck it on out of there and keep it in his apartment. Um, he put the most valuable stuff into security deposit boxes at the banks and he eventually ended up selling all of it over the years. And the amount that he paid to the family for it was very little. They didn't care. They were going to literally throw it into the garbage and have the trash 
guys take it away. So this was the last chance of someone to buy it. So over the years, people have said, well, he ripped off Edgar Church's family, and he should have given them more, and he should have let them know how valuable it was. And he says in his version of the story, they didn't care. They just wanted to get rid of it, and they didn't care how much he gave them. And it's, I guess, an ethical question. And it reminded me of my experience working in a record store um, when people would come in with their record collections and want to get rid of it. And we tried to be as honest as we could about it. And we would give people not what the records were worth if they were valuable, but we would give them more than if they were just records we were going to sell for a buck in the used record bins. And I didn't feel like we were under any obligation to tell people, why well, you could get more money. And in fact, some of the times that we did tell them maybe they should hang on to something and sell it somewhere else, they really didn't care because they just wanted to get rid of it. So I, I never felt like we were deceiving people. I don't think that Chuck Rosansky deceived the family. They just wanted to get rid of it. And, uh, you know, we live in a capitalist society, and that's kind of the way things go. If you are going to read it, be aware that his account of this goes on to something like 11 or 12 or 17 pages. It really does go on and on. But it's very well written, and for any true comic book geek who's interested in how these things happen, um, it's it's very instructive, and it kind of gives a, a window onto what was happening at that time. And he talks about how finding the Edgar Church collection and then starting to sell these mint golden age comics actually did a lot of weird things to the economy of comic book collecting because suddenly there were these comics on the market that no one had ever seen before. And it made the value of other things go way, way down. And some people hated him just for making that happen. So it was very educational to find out all this, and I really liked the way it was translated into Wimbledon Green. So I can strongly recommend this book. It's, uh, let's see, 1995. I don't think it's ever, well, maybe it will come out in paperback, but the hardcover is definitely the one to get. It really is a beautiful book with a lot of great art and a lot of fun in it. It it also reminded me in a lot of ways of Citizen Kane uh, because that's a movie about a guy that nobody really knows where he came from or where he, you know, what what really happened to him, even though his life was very public. And a lot of it is told from that sort of point of view with people who knew him well and people who just had fleeting contact. And sometimes the people who had fleeting contact actually have the most profound things to say. So Wimbledon Green combines a lot of that. So thanks, Rory. Thanks for making me buy this. It was definitely a good purchase, and, and I love it. Okay, so let me go on to another thing, which was very kindly sent to me by the author. And this is called Dr. Sketchy's Rainy Day Coloring Book, and it's by Molly Crabapple and John Levitt. And whenever I say Molly Crabapple's name, I want to say Crabapple, because uh, I've watched too much Simpsons, but no, it's Crabapple. And Molly Crabapple is an artist herself, and she's also a model. She has a great website at mollycrabapple.com that shows a lot of her art and what she's done and, and some pictures of herself showing what a beautiful person she is. And the reason that this book exists is because she started herself this um, franchise. It's not quite a franchise. It's, it's a thing that happens. So let me try to explain. Um, her history was that she had done a lot of... Um, artist modeling for art classes and for other people and kind of got frustrated with it because the pay wasn't so good and it wasn't fun and sometimes the people were kind of weird. So she tried to figure out a way to make it be fun for the models and for the artists as well. So she decided to start this thing called Dr. Sketchies where the modeling session would be in like a bar or a, um, a public 
performance place. And the model will get to wear or not wear whatever he or she wanted to and perform to music. And there would be drinks and there would be snacks and there would be prizes and there would be all kinds of fun things happening. And the end result would just be more like a party than anything else, but there would still be some serious art going on. And she's since started this in New York and then it's spread to other places and it's extremely successful now. And there's probably one happening in a major city near you. There just was one in San Francisco, which I sadly missed, but they're going on all the time. And the news section of her site gives a listing of, of when these events are happening. So this book is partly the history of how that came to be with photographs of different events in different cities. It is also a coloring book. It's also a paper doll book because there are dolls that you can cut out and, and color in and pose. Um, Let's see. It, I'll read from the back cover. It is a book of dirty jokes, pornographic paper dolls, and drink recipes. It will tell you how to take over the world, but it can't buy you love. So it has paper dolls, interviews, a maze, word puzzles, a board game, good ideas, bad ideas, a way to make invisible ink, drink recipes, an evil curse, uh, cut out pasties, 68 new Molly Crabapple illustrations, 17 John Levitt cartoons, Four playlists, one false history, two accurate histories, and one way to rule the world. And Warren Ellis really likes it, too. It has great instructions on how to hold one of these Dr. Sketchy events if you, in fact, are interested in doing it. Um, so I think it's it's really cool. It, it's kind of a – the book is, is like a – I guess the word pastiche is the word I'm looking because there's just a whole bunch of stuff thrown in here all together. But, it, but it's, it's a really cool thing, and every time I look at it, I kind of find something different. Um, I will also say that even though there are many more female models than male models, it's really nice to see real women doing the modeling. None of them look like models that you might see, oh, I don't know, in a DC comic book, for example. They're all real women with real tits and real asses and real rolls of fat and big legs and beautiful faces. and They're really cool looking, all of them, every single one of them. Um, there's one woman in particular named Tangerine who is quite, quite amazing looking. I think she's probably the best looking woman in here. Tangerine Jones. Yeah, she's pretty hot. So I think um, in a way to combine two things that all comic book artists who draw for DC and for Marvel too should be forced to attend one of these Dr. Sketchy's things and see what a real woman looks like because some of them probably haven't and see what real women look like when they do poses and what their faces look like and what their bodies look like. And they should not be allowed to go back to drawing comics until they have completed um, and been certified as a Dr. Sketchy's artist. I really think that that would improve the art in comic books to pretty much an unmeasurable extent. And, and I'm going to stand by that statement. Um, so thanks, Molly, for sending me this pre-publication copy. It was really cool to have it. This book is on sale at a bookstore near you. It was actually on sale um, in December, and of course I'm just really late getting to these things. And it's published by um, Sepulchre, Sepulchre, yeah, that's really hard to say, DIY Publishing. So yay for Dr. Sketchy's official rainy day coloring book. I can I can highly recommend it, even if you just want some, some kind of, not dirty pictures, but pictures of, of cool-looking naked women, you can find it in here. So um, let me take a little break, and then I'm going to come back and talk about uh, just a couple more things.
okey-doke, a uh, couple of things that I made notes on before I forget. Scans Daily continues to be the joy and delight of my daily life. There's just so much goodness posted there. It is really, really, really cool. Um, there was a series recently that someone had scanned in showing the origin of Super Horse, which was, like, hands down one of the funniest things that I've ever, ever read. It's just crazy Silver Age DC goodness. Um, better than the Legion stuff. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that I have the comics that have the origin of Super Horse somewhere in my garage. I have to try and dig them out. But, man, it's good. So if you're not reading Scans Daily, you probably should be. Um, and there is also, I think I might have mentioned before, I'm a big fan of Penn & Teller's Bullshit Show. And the new series is out on Showtime right now. I just watched the one that they did about exorcism. And it was pretty darn good. Um, and in another skeptical bent, I will also mention again, Chris Wisney is great comic doctor debunko. Uh, the last time I saw Chris at WonderCon, I bought a whole bunch of them, and I started mailing them off to my skeptical friends. So um, they're now in the hands of people who would like them and might actually review them. So it's fun. You should have it if you don't already. Okay. So here are the last two books that I want to talk about today. One of them is from Fantagraphics, and it's called New Tales of Old Palomar, and it has a number one on it, which I think is a good sign. I'm really hoping that there are more. And so this is uh, Gilbert Hernandez, and it is a story of Palomar um, a long time ago. <laughs> so it's kind of revisiting the past. You know, the even in the regular Love and Rockets comics, we flash back sometimes to things that have happened, and this was at a point when... Um, you know, Luba was still there, and Pipo had just married Gatto, and um, the whole point of this is um, finding the two girls, um, Tonantzin and Diana, who are sisters, and this is when they um, turned up in the village, and there's some other stuff that happens in there too, but that's really the main plot. Um, these books are part of uh, this beautiful series... Um, it's the, I'm reading it. The New Tales of Old Palomar, number one, is the 14th book in the Ignatz collection. So these books are oversized, and they're printed on really nice heavy yellowish stock, and they're black and white, but the pages are just so big, there's lots and lots of room for detail and lots of room for the artist to do all kinds of interesting illustrations. There are some really cool full-page illustrations in here that are great. And there's just a kind of a, a, a scale, a scope to it that you don't get normally in Love and Rockets. And it's always interesting to see the artist revisit characters who, in the timeline of Love and Rockets, are now much older, and some of them are dead, and some of them we don't know what's happened to them. So I like seeing his take on, on those younger characters. Um, I have to say, though, I'm a little confused about the timeline, because in this story... Um, the two girls, Tonantzin and Diana, are really children. They look like they're, I don't know, six or seven years old. Tonantzin, she's the older one. And Diana, maybe four or five. There were earlier, much earlier stories where it was shown that the girls were pretty much the same age as some of the, the male characters, Israel. Um, so I'm not quite sure how this fits in. And maybe this is not meant to really be part of the history. This is just a story out of time. I'm not sure, but I was wondering if anybody else noticed that. And I kind of looked around on the web, and I read some reviews, and nobody else seemed to bring it up. And I actually looked for a timeline for Palomar. There are a couple timelines for the Hopper stories, giving people's relative ages and the years in which things happen. But I could not find one for Palomar. So if anybody knows, um, I'd really appreciate knowing. So it's, you know, like all of Love and Rockets, 
I have to say, if you don't know anything about the characters and the setting, this might be kind of tough going because it really helps to know who these people are and what their relationship is to each other. I think Gilbert does a good job of having the characters address each other by name often enough so that you know who they are and sort of what their relationship is. Um, for my taste, Luba doesn't get nearly enough screen time, but it's not a story about her. But she's still there and being all cool and holding her hammer with her wooden shoes on and all that. And there are a couple new characters that I hadn't seen before, um, Gero and Arturo, who are a gay couple. And they haven't shown up before, as far as I can tell, and it's kind of cute to see them being all smoochy with each other. And there's the usual starring role of the landscape and the creatures that live there and the really big, weird, funky, outer space-looking sculptures that are around. So, um... If you are into Love and Rockets, I can definitely recommend it. If you have never read any of it before, like I said, I think it might be kind of tough going. But it really is beautiful, and I'm, I'm so glad that Fantagraphics is taking the time and money to put out these Ignatz collections, because they are really, really beautiful art pieces, not just comic books, but art pieces. So that's that. And now, the last thing on the list is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I think I'd mentioned before that I bought Volumes 1 and 2 because the bookstore down the street from my office was going out of business and they were on sale, so I had to get them. And, you know, coming late to the party, as always, I hadn't really known much about these, and I certainly haven't seen the movie, and now I'm kind of curious to see how bad it is compared to this, because I really like this. Of course, it's Alan Moore. It's really great. Um, these were originally published uh, 1999-2000, and this book came out, uh, I guess, in 2000. Um, so art by Kevin O'Neill, for the most part, with a few other people helping. And, of course, by Alan Moore. And like most of these things that Alan Moore puts out, uh, like the Watchmen, Ultimate Watchmen collection, um, it has all this stuff. So there's a prologue, and there's an, a whole huge story afterwards that's called... Uh, Alan and the Sundered Veil, which is a story of Alan Quatermain, which is really tough going. I mean, it's funny and all, but wow, it's hard to read. That pulpy stuff. I mean, Alan Moore can really write it, but it's hard. And then all of the individual um, issue covers are reproduced in the back with some other um, fun and funky stuff. There's a painting by number of Dorian Gray that's pretty good, and then it shows you what it looks like. Um, and the text is, is funny. So this is a great little collection, and I really enjoyed the story. Um, I hadn't quite known what it was about, but for those of you who haven't read it, and I can't believe anybody hasn't read it, I feel like I'm the last person on earth to know about it. It's a fictitious story of kind of an Avengers, X-Men, JLA group that's made up of um, fiction, fictional characters from the uh, late 19th century. So the characters who make up this particular league. And it's funny that he calls it the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen when the founding member of it um, is uh, Wilhelmina Mina Murray, who is from the Bram Stoker novel Dracula, which I kind of didn't get when I first saw it. And I was like, oh, because she was married to Jonathan Harker. So it was Mina Harker, but her maiden name is Murray. And Captain Nemo from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Alan Quatermain from King Solomon's Mines, um, Henry Jekyll, also Mr. Hyde, um, and Holly Griffin, who's also the Invisible Man. And lots of other fictional characters pop up from time to time in here, too. So it's a real treat for um, 
history and you know Alan Moore loves to do that kind of stuff just to populate things with as many different references as you can possibly get so there's volume one and volume two and and reading the Wikipedia page there's supposed to be another volume called the Black Dossier which says it will slip between volume slip in between volumes two and three release date has been repeatedly pushed back supposed to be May 30th, 2006, then October 25th, then January of 2007, currently slated for release on October 24th, 2007. So I'll believe it when I see it. I guess it's going to come out eventually, but, you know, whatever. I'm not counting on Alan Moore to bring this out on time. And then there's supposed to be a third volume that comes out in 2008, so I'm guessing it'll be well past 2010 by the time that actually comes out. But I'm sure they'll be good. So um, the stories in this book make up a couple of plots. Uh, most of the, the first part of it is really just the, the League coming together as Mina has to go on Captain Nemo's sub and find all these people and bring them together. And then um, there's a whole plot versus uh, Fu Manchu, pretty much. <laughs> um, and what happens to him, and then a guy who turns out to be Professor Moriarty, who is Sherlock Holmes' rival. And there's huge science fictional elements in it as well. It's really well written and all kinds of crazy things happen in it which you would only get in a comic book so i could see how they wanted to make it into a movie but i could also see how they probably couldn't make it into a movie um i think the character of mina is really wonderful uh i kind of didn't get the whole vampire thing until later she's got a scarf wrapped around her neck which she never takes off and she's the boss she's in charge of the league she makes all the decisions and uh all of the men grudgingly give her their respect because she shows herself to be a very capable leader. There's a couple panels where she's uh, showing her, her leadership and she's sitting there and she's smoking a cigarette and looking very, very much in charge of things. So for that reason alone, I think it, it's great to see her be in charge and kind of know what's going on and make mistakes as all leaders do. But she acknowledges her mistakes and... Uh, you know, kind of reins in the other characters when they need to be reined in and tells them what to do and knows what their strengths are and their weaknesses, too. So I have to say, there is one thing about this that really bothered me. Um, Most of the... There's a lot of violence, and some of the violence is played for laughs, and some of it is really gross and disgusting, like when Jekyll turns into Hyde, and Hyde just literally rips people apart, rips their heads off and rips their arms and legs off, and... um, you know, Kevin O'Neill doesn't really shy away from showing us all that gore. So it is kind of like a penny dreadful in that way where you actually get to see all the awfulness. Um, and there's some pretty funny stuff along the way. You know, Captain Nemo hates everyone, which is great. He just has scorn for the entire human race, which is pretty amusing. The thing that bugged me, though, is in the scene where they finally uh, get Griffin, the Invisible Man, and the, the reason that they get him is because there have been rumors at this r- school for girls that the Holy Spirit has been knocking them up. So they go there to find out, and it's all, you know, this kind of sexuality that's played for laughs. It's Miss Rosa Coote's Correctional Academy for Wayward Gentlewoman, and there's a lot of spanking that goes on, and, you know, lots of implied, I guess, consensual S&M, and lots of tits all over the place. You know, haha, that's really funny, but the thing is that when we finally catch up with the Invisible Man, he's raping these girls, and they're really girls. They're not women. They're, you know, schoolgirls, and I think the implication is supposed to be that they don't mind. 
that it's kind of okay with them that some unknown spirit is raping them in the middle of the night and that they're getting pregnant and having babies from it. That's creepy. That's not funny. That's creepy. Really, really, really creepy. It's not funny. And I guess I could see how somebody like Alan Moore might think it's funny, but it's not funny. It's creepy. Older men raping young schoolgirls while invisible is just plain creepy. And he's a dislikable character, so I'm glad that they continued to do that with him to show through words and through his actions that he's pretty much an asshole in every way. So they don't, Alan Moore does not excuse his character, but I think that could have been portrayed as being not a joke, but being a genuinely creepy thing. And um, Griffin, the Invisible Man, pretty much shows he has no respect for any sort of human life as it goes through. He kind of wantonly kills people who don't need to be killed and um, pretty much almost turns traitor a couple of times and leaves everybody behind, but he doesn't. So, um, yeah, he's pretty despicable. Pretty, pretty horrible. So, anyway, uh, I, I read through Volume 1, and I, I need to write, read through it again because it's very, very dense. There's a lot of plot that goes on and it's very very plot heavy and you really have to pay attention to the characters and it took me a couple times through to kind of make sure I understood who was doing what and what was going on so I'm going to tackle um, volume two and I'll talk about that when I'm finished with it as well so yeah it's really good to see another Alan Moore thing and the art is really really beautiful in here as well the coloring in particular is just great Um, it, it really conveys that sense of the 19th century world really kind of gross and smelly and disgusting. (laughs) And, uh, you know, just the normal people in London walking around with smallpox scars and physical deformities. And just, you know, that's the way life was then. So, yay for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I've heard that the movie's really bad, um, but I'll probably want to see it anyway, just to see how bad it is. So, I think that is going to be it for now. Um... I will have a whole bunch of new stuff to review next time. And thanks to everybody who sent in uh, email. I really like getting the email, and I'm sorry that I can't respond to it just as often as I want to. And now, to round out this show, I'm going to play you a really annoying piece of music, because uh, I like to do that, um, which is <laughs> the closing theme to Pokemon Battle Frontier. No, no, no. Pokemon Battle Frontier. No, it is Pokemon Battle Frontier. I had to get it straight. And they only play a little snatch of it, and it turned out that it's the main theme music for a different Pokemon movie that was called Mirage of the Mastermind, or The Mastermind of Mirage, I can't quite remember. And I actually had to go find it on YouTube and download the Japanese version of it and and uh, record the song. And it's, it's like a Pokemon rap song, and I never heard anything like this before. And I thought that you should hear it, too, because once you hear it, you know what? It's going to stay in your head forever, and you won't be able to forget it. And then you can thank me for that. Yo! Pokemon Masters, your heart beats fast. 